look in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look again in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I didn't have any new papers today, uh, but we're not. We're kind of just going through some of the scripture in 2 Corinthians. Last week we began looking at the first five chapters, and we're just kind of going chapter by chapter and just reading uh, some sections and getting kind of an overview of what the chapters say. This is our outline that we looked at. In the first seven chapters, Paul is really dealing with a defense of his apostleship uh, and his legitimacy as an apostle. And as we said last week, 2 Corinthians, whereas 1 Corinthians is very practical, 2 Corinthians is very personal. You really see Paul's heart coming through, and we'll see that in the first scriptures that we will read today. But you really see his heart coming through to the church that he founded and that he had been being attacked uh, and people were trying to uh, make his apostleship seem like it was false or fake. And so he's been kind of dealing on that issue along with giving some very interesting theological nuggets that we looked at a couple of those last week. So we're going to begin in chapter 6 this week as we came off of a great passage of Scripture where Paul is talking about being reconciled unto God and how God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And now Paul, as a faithful ambassador and as an ambassador and an apostle for Christ, is calling others to be reconciled to God and to recognize what Jesus has done for them. So we're going to start today in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll still see some of the theme of Paul's appealing to the church for faithfulness to his ministry because he feels that he has been faithful to God. So in chapter 6, verse 1, notice how he opens chapter 6. He says, as God's co-workers... As God's co-workers, he just got finished you know, saying, we are ambassadors for Christ, calling out to the world to be reconciled to God. And as God's co-workers, we urge, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He says in verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited, but rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he goes on to talk about their hardships and their troubles that they went through and the kind of love that they shown and the purity of their ministry. And he's again giving this defense that they're not here to put stumbling blocks in people's past. They're not here to do anything so that their ministry or their lives or their testimonies would be discredited when there were others trying to discredit their ministry. If you look down in verse number 11 of chapter 6, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. There you see that personal nature. We opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Not all of them, but some of them. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. 
So again, he's a peace trying to repair this relationship that was broken. And I think this is, you know, if you've ever gone through, we probably all have been through relationships that have been fractured or that have been broken. And, and I think that's part of him appealing to uh, the reconciliation in chapter 5. Reconciliation has to take place when two parties that were once close, that relationship has now been broken. And Paul is using that in an ex- as an example of his relationship with the Corinthians. What once was a pure and perfect relationship, because of those coming into the church and those inside the church causing divisions, that relationship has been fractured. And now Paul is trying to mend that relationship. First of all, as a father figure, trying to correct what, they, what he feels that the Corinthians have been doing wrong, and he did that in 1 Corinthians as an instructor and as a father. And now he's opening up his heart unto them, almost pleading and appealing to them. And here's what I love about this topic of reconciliation. A lot of times we think we're in the right and somebody else is in the wrong. And well, when they come back and apologize to me, or when they come back and make it right with me, you know, then I'll move. But Paul is showing that in a fractured relationship, the more mature one approaches first. And he's saying, we've opened our hearts to you. We have not done any wrong to you. We're appealing to you. And now we're asking you to open your hearts to us and to come back and put your confidence and trust in us as, as leaders again. And I think that has something to do with what he appeals in chapter 5. When he says, you know, God has reconciled us in Christ. When the relationship between God and mankind was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden, it is God that came looking for Adam, didn't he? He said, Adam, where are you? Adam was hiding from God, but God came looking for Adam. And in the, in the context of salvation universally, God made the move to reconcile the relationship with mankind. God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on a cross to take mankind's sin when man did not ask God to do that. God, out of love, sent His own Son, made the first step, took the initiative, paid the price And because of that, Paul said in chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world, making it right with the world, not counting men's sins against them, but offering forgiveness freely. And now Paul says, because of what he's done, we're calling the world. Now you be reconciled to God. So I really think that he's using this to teach a great principle, but also to teach us something about relationships that it was God that came to us to mend the broken relationship because of sin. So now it's Paul appealing to the Corinthians, showing them his love for them, that they in turn would show love back to Paul, just as God showed us his love first through Christ and calls us to respond to his love with love of our own for him. And that shows great maturity in relationship where somebody has to make the first move to to offer reconciliation. 
and to show love and to make it right with no guarantee that that's going to be shown back to them. But yet, the first move is made. So I think in the midst of 2 Corinthians, Paul is teaching a great principle on forgiveness. He's teaching a great principle on love. He's teaching a great principle on reconciliation. And he's opening up his hearts to them that they can see his heart. You know, sometimes we say things that we really don't mean at times, and sometimes in, in the heat of arguments or things we act a certain way, but that's not really our heart. And we've probably all said things that right after we said it, we said, man, I wish I could, I could take that back. And, and sometimes we as humans, we just act that, that way. But opening up our hearts by showing people love helps to mend relationships, not proving I'm right, you know, and you're wrong all the time, but, but showing a heart of compassion and love. And that's what Paul is doing here in his call. We've opened our hearts wide to you. Now, open your hearts to us. And as co-laborers in this mission of the gospel, because that's what the Corinthian church is. So he, he says that as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. He says, we've put no stumbling block. We've opened up our hearts to you. Open up your hearts to us. And then he says in verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, most of the time we use this in a context of marriage where we tell people, you know, don't be married to unbelievers. Well, Paul in the context isn't speaking of marriage, but there is a eternal principle here. And his eternal principle is speaking to this church by showing them that there are others that would be coming in that might claim to be brethren, that might be false brethren, or as in 1 Corinthians, those who were out in the world, in the pagan world, that would come in to influence them. So he's telling them to reject outside influence and don't be yoked together as God's people with those who are unbelievers. So he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what righteousness or for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So being yoked together in a form of this covenantal relationship that between Paul and the church should be based upon the covenant community of faith. Uh, you know, he's not telling them to, you know, I don't think he's telling them not to be friends with, you know, anybody in the world or not associate with, you know, people out there. Uh, in the world, but he's speaking in the context of Christian covenant and community. I can't have Christian fellowship with somebody who has no Christianity or no Christian fellowship with me and not being uh, yoked together in some type of a bond or a covenant relationship with them. So you can see how he's addressing the church for one issue, but he's also giving behind the issue a spiritual principle that we can apply to many issues. And then he goes on to, um, to some Old Testament quotes at the end of, of chapter 6. And, you know, chapter 6 could also kind of have to go back and do with the, the issue with the pagan world around them. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians, he told them, he told the men, don't go visit the, uh, the prostitutes in the pagan temples, you know, don't go eat in the pagan temples with food sacrificed to idols. So he could kind of be going back and alluding to some of that he spoke about in 1 Corinthians that had to do with the, the paganism in Corinth when he was telling them you know, not to go eat in the pagan temples or go visit the temple prostitutes or things like that. 
Uh, so it, it could allude back to some of that that he spoke about in 1 Corinthians. But he ends chapter 6 with some Old Testament quotations. And then in chapter 7, he begins this. He says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So again, he starts with God's promises. And because of God's promises, let us respond this way in purity and righteousness. He says in verse number two, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. So again, he's going back and appealing to them. If you look down in chapter seven, verse number six, he says this, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the um, don't let my wife see me picking up my Bible this close. By the comfort that you had given him, he told us your longing for me. So he received a report from Titus, and we talked about this in our introduction. T- Titus had brought Paul back a report, and this report was in response to the harsh letter that Paul sent. After 1 Corinthians, he sent a harsh letter. And he, re- he heard back from Titus a report that pleased Paul. And the report he got back from Titus gave him comfort. And here's a little bit about the report that Titus gave to Paul. In verse number 7, the middle part of that, he says, He told us about your longing for me. He told us about your deep sorrow your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So after this harsh letter that Paul sends, he hears word back that they had responded positively. And this gives Paul great comfort and gives him great joy. He says in verse number 8, he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. He regretted sending that letter because he's like, I don't know how they're going to respond to me being harsh with them. He says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He says, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this Matter. So, you know, he's, he sent this harsh letter, didn't know how they would respond. He was sorrowful for writing that. He didn't want to write that. But yet, when he heard back from Titus that they had repented, that the majority of them had received his letter and, was, and saw the error of their way, uh, he was very joyful about, about that. So, we see that the relationship 
from 1 Corinthians, you know, has, was repaired a little bit because of that. And Paul is expressing his heart to the Corinthians. So these first seven chapters was Paul's defense of his apostleship and his defense of himself as an apostle to the majority that had now come back to him in repentance and concern. In chapter 8 and 9, he switches gears a little bit. And he takes up the issue of the collection. I want to set a little context. So if you want to hold your place in chapter 8 and look back with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The last chapter of 1 Corinthians. So in chapters 8 and 9, again, Paul's appeal to the church in Corinth regarding this collection of money that Paul wanted to collect. So if you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 1, he says this. He says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will need to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, then they will accompany me. So this is the introduction to the collection. Um, he's taking up what we would call a love offering for those. This He's not taking up, uh, you know, what we would, say, tithe and offering, he's taken up a love gift to give to the believers and to the church in Jerusalem that were in great need at the time. So he tells them, he says, here's how I want you to save up for this collection. He says, because when I get there, I don't want to have to spend the time taking up a collection. I want you to have the collection ready. He says, so here's what I want you to do. He says, every week on the first day of the week, uh, you should set aside a sum of your money and keeping with your income, saving it up, uh, so that when I arrive, the collection will be made, and you can approve some people to go and take the collection to Jerusalem. If you want me to go with them, I will go with them. So that was the instructions that Paul gave to the church for this love gift to the saints at Jerusalem. And obviously, he's collected these from the churches in Galatia and Macedonia as well. So if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He picks up this issue of the collection. So he says in chapter 8, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. So he's giving them the example of what happened in Macedonia. Obviously a church that was very poor, very impoverished, but yet they had a desire to give to other believers. And with them not having a lot, they gave over and above God blessed them to give over and above, again, not compelled to do it, not, you know, manipulated to do it, but just out of their 
generous hearts that they gave over and above exceeding the expectations of Paul. In verse number six, he says, So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also a completion to this act of grace on your part. So obviously what Paul instructed them in 1 Corinthians, Titus's visit, you know, he had spoken to them about the collection and it had began. And then now he's urging them to complete, to finish taking up this collection. He says in verse number seven, but since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and love that we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Uh, so again, he's urging them. He says, you guys do a great job in everything, so excel in this as well, the grace of giving. And he sets that up, and he begins to talk a little bit more in chapter 8 about that. But let's go over to chapter 9 as he's still talking about, really, he's teaching on a generous spirit here in chapter 9. He says in verse number 1 of 2 Corinthians 9, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. So now we find out that the excitement from the Macedonian churches was because of what Paul had told them about the generosity of the church in Corinth and in Achaia. Let's go down to verse number 6. Here's the principles on giving that he gives. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Basically, basically he's saying if you're you know, a stingy person, you know, not willing to give to others, then you're not going to receive much uh, in return as well. But if you're generous... Generosity follows generous people. Now what he's not doing here, Paul is not preaching what we would call in America today a prosperity theology. And we've all seen the guys on television late at night that say, you know, if you send me a thousand dollars, you know, then uh, God's going to give you a hundredfold return next year, you know. And, and let, let me just say this. I wholeheartedly believe, and Paul does too, and the Bible does, wholeheartedly believes in the, in the spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. When we sow into God's work, when we sow into other people's lives, we do receive a blessing. Now, what that blessing looks like it could come in many different ways. So, don't, like many other issues, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because there's some millionaire preachers on television wearing suits that cost more than our houses do, saying, send me your money, send me your money, and God's going to give you this money, He's going to give you this, give you this, and promise you this. You know, people can't do that. You know, there's been times, and, and there's many times in my life that we felt we needed to, my wife and I felt we needed to do something, or we needed to give a certain amount, or we were would be in a a church service, or we felt like, we, you know, and, and we would just do that. And we've seen blessings in return. So there is, a, there is a biblical spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. The problem is when we take God's promises and His Word, number one, take it to an extreme. Number two, use it for personal greed and gain. 
And number three, manipulating people, telling them and promising them they're going to get something or they're going to get a specific something if they, do, if they do this. If God speaks to your heart to tell you to, to, to do something, you need to follow that. You know, if a slick car salesman preacher tells you to, to do that, you may want to really pray about that thing. Um, because while there is a biblical principle of sowing and reaping, just like everything else in, in religion, it can be perverted to use for personal gain. It can absolutely be perverted. And I have seen it firsthand being around. I've preached in many different churches, been around a lot of ministries, and I have seen it. I've had other friends in ministry that have been in the back rooms where, where the preacher's talking about how they're going to go out and try to get money from all the people. And, you know, one account of I have a, I had a friend of mine, he was a worship leader or, you know, in a big church and, uh, or they were a guest worship leader in a big church. And uh, the pastor come back and they had taken him to offer and he said, we didn't get enough money. So he said, I said, I got to go back out. And he went back out and said, the Lord showed me that, you know, there's still some people here that need to give, you know, a thousand dollars or 5,000, whatever he said. And that's pure manipulation. You know, that's, that's absolute pure manipulation. Um, and one of the main reasons why people do not take Christianity seriously, you know, because you have, you know, people on television that were sitting in big gold chairs wearing Armani suits and telling them we need your money. Well, pawn the gold chair, okay? <laughs> pawn the gold chair. Look, I, I've even told churches before, I don't know why we take up collections, why we take up offerings in gold plates, you know? Pass around a ball cap. We can't even afford a plate, you know? <laughs> Nothing says we need your money like a gold plate and a gold chair and, you know, all of this. You know, so what Paul is teaching here is a spiritual biblical principle. That when prompted by the Holy Spirit and a heart of generosity and the grace of giving, and he's going to talk about, you know, not, not under compulsion. Paul's not trying to sell them something. He's not trying to sell them a miracle or say, if you sow this amount of money, God's going to give you a miracle uh, you, you can't buy miracles, you can't buy salvation, you can't buy blessings from God. You've already been blessed by God. Um, so you've got to be careful because I've seen people manipulated so greatly. And I've, and I've backed out of doing things with other pastors because it was manipulation and it was greed. I said, I can't be a part of that. And um, so just... Be discerning, be discerning, but also be generous because that's what God would have us to be. God would have us to be faithful with our finances because we recognize that everything we have comes from God. So this principle of tithing is we honor God with our first fruits because we honor Him, because He's provided everything to us. So we honor God with that. You know, we, we give generously to, to people, to missions, to, to the poor, to organizations because we're generous people as God's people, because God has been generous to us. So he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously, because we will reap what we sow. And that's not just in finances, that's in every area of our lives. He says, you will also, no, that's the wrong one. He says, uh, verse number seven, each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. 
for God loves a cheerful giver. So he, he, he shows us here, it's not just about the act of giving, it's about the attitude with which you give that God wants from you. Not just your, your money. God, God doesn't need our money. He's got plenty of it. He paves his streets with gold. But yet, our giving, our generosity should be a reflection of our hearts. We should be generous people because we have generous hearts. Not give grudgingly or give reluctantly or just give with a bad spirit. God wants us to give with a good spirit. And it's not always those that give the most are the most generous. I've seen people that had very little and gave very little. But their little, when you see their heart, that little became great and abundant because of it. I've seen children come up and put pennies in plates because they wanted to. And those pennies... And God's eyes are worth a million dollars. It's a heart issue, not a money issue. It's a heart issue. So he says, it's not just the act of giving, it's the attitude of giving. And he says, and because of this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God does bless his children. God does bless us in return. He doesn't promise us he's going to make us all millionaires or give us mansions or fancy cars. It's not about that at all. He says, For as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. He says in verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower, because it's God that supplies us the ability, he blesses us that we could be a blessing. And bread for all will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And again, he's not just talking about material things. He's talking about spiritual things as well. He says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I love what he talks about here because he doesn't say, if you give money, God's going to give you money. Because how many of you know generosity can be so much more than money? You can take 10 minutes and be generous to somebody by calling them on the phone or helping somebody, you know, bring groceries in or by helping somebody load stuff into their car. When you see a need, you be generous. It's not just a money thing. It's a heart thing. And God says when you are generous, God will make sure that he continues to bless you, that you can continue to be generous in every way that that looks like. You can be generous by volunteering. You can be generous by spending time with, with, with children who, whose mom and dads are, are not around. There's so many ways that you can be, you can be generous by donating some th- stuff that you have that you haven't used in forever and won't use. It's not just writing a big check. It's by every little thing that we can do to help out others who have less than us. So generosity is the heart of what Paul is speaking of in 8 and 9 as he makes the collection. In the final part of, of the book here in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, he changes his tone again. Leaving the collection and generosity, he now goes, he spoke to the majority of people, 
who's heard his letter and repented. He talked about the collection. Now he's going to address a minority in the church that is still causing problems. They're still trying to attack Paul. They're still trying to lead people astray. And Paul is now going to deal with them in some harsh terms here. So in chapter 10, and we'll read a few of these. Verse number one, he says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, now he's, you kind of have to pick up on the tone of what Paul is doing here. Paul's going to use a little bit of sarcasm. He's going to use some of their words that they've said about him to turn around. And uh, it's, it's funny how he starts with humility and gentleness, and then he's going to go into a, an all-out attack on them. He's like, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this in love, you know. I'm going, to, I'm going to spank you in love, you know. But he says, I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you went away. Now, that's stuff that they say about him. They say, well, Paul, when, when he's with us, he's not all that. He's not all that intimidating. But in his letters, when he's not here, he's very, very bold. And he'll be strong in words, but when he gets here, he's not that impressive. That's what the opponents were saying about Paul. So Paul uses that and says, I, Paul, who am timid when I'm with face-to-face with you, but very bold when I'm away, I beg that when I come, I may not be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. So Paul's like, when I come, I hope I'm not going to be as bold as I'm thinking I'm going to be right now uh, when I get there face-to-face with these who are opposing Paul. In verse number 7, he says, You judge by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us, For building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, again he's using their words, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. He says such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So you see there's a whole different tone. This is this is the other side of Paul, you know. You know, you had the you know, we're appealing to you, we're opening up our hearts to you, and then Paul's like, we're coming in guns blazing. <laughs> you know, so again to understand the difference is you have to understand who he's talking to. In the first part he's talking to those who in the church who have, you know, they they've repented their hearts. He's speaking to these that are trying to cause trouble. He's speaking to those who are trying to hurt and lead his people in the church astray. And he's like, old Paul is getting ready to come out now. Um, so you can tell by chapter 10, this is starting out pretty, uh, pretty harsh. Let's go over to chapter 11. Um, He says in verse number 1 of chapter 11, I hope you will put up with me in a little bit of foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. 
But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, uh, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion from Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus that, other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you've accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's saying, so if someone comes in preaching something different than what you've heard, you put up with it. And he's saying, I've come to present you as pure to Christ, to stay true to the gospel. He says, because I'm jealous over you, because I've espoused you to Christ, and how dare someone try to come in and lead you astray from that. Look with me in verse number 12 of chapter 11. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about, because the apostles, they had authority from God. And then there were those who didn't have authority from God, that are now masquerading as if they have the same authority as an apostle like Paul. So he says in verse 13, For such people are false apostles, deceitful, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. He says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants are also masquerade as servants of righteousness, but their end will be what their actions Deserve. So he's saying there are some that come in that are false apostles, they're deceitful workers, they're following after Satan who he makes himself appear as an angel of light, and they're making themselves appear as angels of light as well. And he says they're going to get what is coming to them for trying to deceive God's people. Then when we continue on in verse 11, this is what kind of gives us the clue that these are what we would call Judaizers. And we're going to talk way more about the Judaizers in week after next when we come back from our Thanksgiving break and start the book of Galatians. So this is probably kind of a little preview of that. For he says in verse number 22 of chapter 11, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, and in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides all of this, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. So you see what was on Paul's plate. So he's again comparing himself to these false apostles who obviously are Hebrews and Israelites, but Paul's saying, but their devotion to Christ is not my devotion to Christ. 
He says, my devotion to Christ is not just spoken, but it's lived out because I've sacrificed everything from Christ. So this, this passage from Paul, we talked about the prosperity gospel earlier. This passage from Paul does away with that because Paul's not like, I'm an apostle. I travel to churches and spend the night in the best hotels. I get picked up in limousines and, and get carted off into green rooms and eat caviar. And, you know, Paul's like, that's not what an apostle is. He says, because I'm an apostle, I've sacrificed everything in my life. And I've been hungry and thirsty and danger and, and, and I've been shipwrecked and I've gone without food and without clothes and he says, I've sacrificed everything. So serving Christ doesn't guarantee millionaire status. It doesn't guarantee private jets and, you know, Ritz-Carlton hotels, you know, and $1,000 dinners. Serving Christ, hey, if God blesses somebody with that, that's great. God can. But don't think material things equal spiritual maturity. Because there are people that have nothing but are spiritually rich inside. And then there are people that have an abundance of stuff and they are spiritually rich inside. And then there's people who are poor that are spiritually bankrupt. And there's people who are filthy rich that are spiritually bankrupt. So again, you can't judge by the outward appearances, the inward spirituality and dedication. And Paul's proof of that. He says, my life looks unimpressive, not many people would trade lives with me because they would be hungry and naked and thirsty and without a place to stay and live and in danger and people trying to stone them and kill them everywhere. He says, but that's the sacrifice that I've made as a true apostle of Christ. Um, chapter 12, uh, he goes into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the chapter where he talks about the thorn in the flesh that he was giving or that he was given uh, again his opponents were saying because of Paul's condition, that shows he can't be trusted. But Paul says, again, as we talk about in our introduction, he says, I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that Christ could be made strong. So this is when he says in verse number seven, toward the end of verse number seven, he says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, my grace it's sufficient for you. Sometimes it would be great if God took away every one of our problems, right? That would be wonderful. I mean, you couldn't think of anything better. But sad to say, when we come to Christ, that doesn't guarantee all of our problems are going to go away. But it does guarantee that God's going to be with us in the midst of all of our problems to help us through those things and to give us strength and provide for us. So just like what we talked about in a series several months ago, saying, come to Jesus, he'll take away all your problems. Come to God, he'll take away all your problems. That God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. Come to God, you're still probably going to have some problems. I've known people got saved and they had way more problems after they got saved than they did before they got saved. And then they're like, I'm kind of having buyer's remorse, <laughs> you know, right? now. I think I got sold a, a salvation lemon. Because God doesn't promise he's going to take everything away. But he does promise that if it's not taken away, he'll be with us to strengthen us and provide for us and to work in us in the midst of things trying to work against us. So Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but here's what the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. By my grace, you're going to 
make it through all of this. He says, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why for Christ's sake I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So don't give up if you're going through difficult times. You're facing hardships, don't quit. Don't, and don't think God has left you. Because that's another thing. You know, we say, well, if bad things happen to that person. Well, that must, that must show them that God's mad or angry. And I've had people say that. You know, God just must be mad with me. I haven't lived perfect. I haven't done everything right. And this is God's way of punishing me. God isn't punishing you. God's trying to show himself faithful in the midst of a very difficult world. In a very difficult world. And God's trying to get us to focus on Him. And not so much everything that's out here. And that's hard to do, and it's not easy. It wasn't easy 2,000 years ago for Paul, and it's not easy today for us. But Paul still declares, when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, let's see, verse number... Going in chapter 13, uh, he ends in chapter 13, verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. So again, he's looking forward to another visit. Um, he says in verse number 2, I've already gave you warning that when I was with you the second time, now I will repeat it while I'm absent. He says in verse number 2, On my return, I will not spare those who sent earlier or any others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking to me. So again, he goes back to that rhetoric of, uh, or that authority, that authoritative voice that he's using. You think I'm weak when I'm with you. Well, I'm coming soon to visit you again, and I'll show you if I'm going to be weak or not. And he ends in verse, or says in verse number five, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So he's telling that group of people, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless you, of course, you fail the test. He says, and I will trust that you will discover that you have not failed the test. And then he says in verse number 11, finally, brothers and sisters. So now he's ending with his final greetings. Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace. And it just amazes me that that is a closing greeting. But if we would do these things, how much different it would make relationships. Number one, rejoice. Rejoice. Live with joy and have joy in your heart. Number two, strive for full restoration. Strive that no relationships would be broken. Encourage one another, not tearing each other down, but lifting each other up. Be of one mind, not divided in these different divisions, but be together in one mind and one spirit and live in peace. Man, that's powerful. To me, that, to, me, to me, that just closing greeting is worth everything else that was said in the book. If we would apply those principles. 
He says, and the love, he says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace. Not the God of hate and wrath, but the God of love and peace. And then I can't believe Glenn is not here today. I can't believe Glenn's not. I'm going to have to find out and I'm going to get their excuse. But he says in verse number 12, this is Glenn's favorite verse and one he practices, what he preaches. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So if you want to know if you really love somebody or not, if you can kiss them, you love them. We've talked about that before. Um, he says, all God's people send their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's a small teaching on the Trinity. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. So a, a book, and honestly, 2 Corinthians is a kind of an overlooked book. A lot of attention is on 1 Corinthians, not so much as 2 Corinthians, because it's not you know, very exciting. It's very personal. Paul's you know, really dealing with some stuff, but there's rich stuff in 2 Corinthians. So I uh, hope you'll take that and, and remember these as you go back to 2 Corinthians.